Timothy, and starting at chapter 4, go through the first eight verses of chapter 4 in 2 Timothy. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead and his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. They will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth in this very intimate letter that Paul sent to Timothy. Lord, that it may be alive and teach us and instruct us and challenge us this day as we come before these holy words. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now I'm going to tell you a story, and some of y'all are going to get to the punchline before I get to the punchline, but I want to tell you this is not a competition. You don't win if you get to the punchline. Before I do, I'm going to tell the story anyway. Uh, if you've ever been in a group email, and there's maybe several people involved in it, and you want to reply to the group email, you hit reply, and there's a few options that drop down. One of them is that you can reply to one particular person in that group email, Another option is you can reply to all. Okay, <clears throat> here's my story. A few years ago, I was in a group email uh, with some people. Uh, one of them was my bookkeeper, who's local and that I knew. And one of the other people was our accountant, who was in Texas, who I did not know. And so part of the conversation within this group email was what they were going to charge us, what they'd already charged us for doing our taxes. And so I responded what I thought was to the bookkeeper, but I hit reply all. <laughs> My response was, I'm in the wrong business. This is highway robbery. I can't believe they're charging us this much. They should have put a gun to our head. I mean, on and on and on. Needless to say, the response was not favorable and it went on for several pages of the accountant in Texas who was responding to my unfavorable email. Needless to say, we had to find a new accountant the next year. A lot of Paul's letters were written to a congregation. They were written to the leaders in the church, and he was intended, these leaders were intended to share that with the people in the church. In First and Second Timothy, these are very personal letters. In 1 Timothy, Paul is in house arrest in Rome, and he's writing this letter to this young man. We can very clearly see that he's fathering Timothy. He's guiding him into being a leader in the early church. And so we see that. And so Paul has a little bit of freedom during his time. He can have visitors, and, and so he's not constrained to, as he would be in 2 Timothy. He was released after 1 Timothy's writings, and now he's in a dungeon. Uh, 
you only leave the dungeon either to go to court or to be executed. Uh, Paul had already been to court. And so he's in there alone in the dungeon in the dark. So these are his last written words that we know of. It's a very personal letter. It's an intimate letter that he's writing to this young man that he loved very much. And so as we enter into this, we realize is that this is a personal letter. You know, we usually don't go snooping in other people's letters unless you work for the CIA or FBI or, or Google or something, and we go looking at other people's mail. So it's very personal. It's a very intimate thing. We see Paul's heart in this letter and how much he loved Timothy. We see tremendous insight into his relationship and that mentoring process. But we also see how to finish well. And that's what Paul is doing. He's finishing well, and he's working, and he's doing his job all the way to the end because the end is near for Paul. He wants to make sure that he's poured everything that he can into Timothy. He wants to make sure that all the, the gifts that Timothy has are, are brought forth. His letters are loving, but they're firm, they're authoritative, and they're direct. He's spoken to Timothy's weak points and struggles, but he also called forth his gifts. He didn't sugarcoat the hardships and the difficulties of ministry and evangelism, but he also pointed him toward the source of his strength and protection. He commanded him to preach and practice sound doctrine. My first question that I often ask men is that, do you have that type of person in your life? Do you have a Paul in your life? Do you have a Paul in your life who loves you but speaks truth into your life, calls forth your, calls forth your gifts for kingdom work? Several years ago, I was doing a workshop with a, a young physician and as we were talking, it became very clear that he had never been spiritually fathered. He had a father that was physical in, in appearance, but he had never been spiritually fathered. During the workshop, he was from another state. We began to pray for someone to come into his life because there was a big void in his life. And little did we know that God was preparing a man, an older man, back at his church. He was meeting with his pastor. And he felt moved to go to his pastor and say, God just put upon my heart uh, to mentor a young man and to to father him and so when this physician went back home that man was waiting for him and it turned things around for him he needed that Paul figure in his life someone who's going to speak into his life another question is do you have a Timothy are you spiritually mentoring and fathering someone because see without this process we produce spiritually weak men I'm not talking about they're spiritually absent men outside the church but if we don't have this mentoring process and this Paul and Timothy and Timothy and Paul relationship then what we're producing is spiritually weak men Timothy struggled with the spirit of timidity or spirit of fear Paul helped him to walk in faith and not in fear let's take a few minutes uh, to look at some of our verses today and kind of break those down and how Paul finished well through his teaching of Timothy and also finishing his race. In verse uh, chapter 4 and verse 1, we start out with, I charge you. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not uh, if you feel like it. As they say in the South, this is not a yont to. This is a command. Uh, when I give people feedback, I kind of put them in three categories. The first category is if you have a lot of options, 
Well, you might want to consider. You might want to consider these options. It's entirely up to that person. It's not a deal breaker. The second one was you might want to strong, strong, strongly consider these options. We narrow down the options some. And the last one is you need to. And if you don't, then I can't help you. Because that person is doing something that's danger to themselves, they're violating scripture, whatever it may be. And that's what Paul is saying here. This is a command. That's how serious it is. And then he backs it up and he says, uh, I command you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. That's authority, that's power. He's backing up his command with that authority. This is serious stuff. Whenever we pick up the scripture, this is serious stuff. This is holy things. And so Paul starts out by saying, I command you, and here's the authority by how I command you, and here's what he says in verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. He doesn't say have an uplifting and dynamic music program, even though that's, that's important. Nothing wrong with that. That's not what he says. He doesn't say make sure you have an engaged youth program and parents want to bring their ch kids to this program. He doesn't say that. Nothing wrong with that, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say make sure the congregation is entertained with humorous stories. Make sure you have articulate speech. He doesn't say make sure you have perfect teeth and hair. Nothing wrong with that. That's not what he said. You don't have to yell, shame, manipulate people to hear or accept the word. He didn't say make the people accept the word. He said preach the word. God's spirit moving through the hearts of people will prepare the ground. Your job is to plant the seeds. Preach the word. He didn't say you'll be judged upon the number of new converts, even though that's important. Conversion is important. Being born again is important. He didn't say you'll be judged by the numbers you increase within your congregation and your new members, even though that's important. It begins with preaching the word. Without this solid foundation, we are nothing more than an entertainment center, a babysitter, and dog and pony show that produces no fruit. That's why this is so serious. And he continues in the second verse, be ready in season and out of season. In season is when people want to hear the word. Forty years ago, it was in season to be a Christian. You put it on your resume. It's okay to talk about it in the public marketplace. You can talk about being a Christian. Today, it's out of season. We're in a post-Christian country. Several years ago, looking at taking a job and returning back to secular mental health and I had the skill sets to do the job and they would have hired me on the spot for this job and until I got to the HR department and I spent two and a half hours with the director of HR the assistant director of HR the administrator of the hospital a corporate attorney grilling me over how I could not as they called it proselytize the patients I couldn't use the name of Jesus. I couldn't use scripture. I couldn't pray with them. And they grilled me for two and a half hours about how I was going to avoid doing that. Needless to say, I didn't take the job. 
Paul challenges Timothy to stay the course, no matter what the social climate may be. Preach the word. This church has a history of preaching the word. It's what we stand upon. We have a history of that. Most of this was done when Christianity was in season. It was in season to be a Christian. If we look back at our history, it's not going to assure that we're going to continue. Looking back, it's not going to reassure us. It's comforting to know that. But 100 years from now, because it's out of season, what will our legacy be? Will it be that this church maintained preaching the word even when it was out of season? Will we continue to preach the word? Or will we compromise when it's not popular? The Reformation came from a season where if you preach the truth, it cost you your life. Paul was about to lose his. Timothy was doing ministry in a time when Nero intensified his persecution against the church. It was out of season. Will we continue to preach the word even when it's out of season? Then continuing in verse 2, convince rebuke. This is the kind of the negative side that we look at in preaching. It's not really negative, but it feels negative. This is where we reproof and we correct regarding false and inaccurate doctrine. It's where we help someone to understand their errors. Teachers don't reproof and correct because their favorite ink is red. That's not why they do it. Teachers do it because they don't want their students to struggle in the future. They want them to get it right now. Air traffic controllers want to correct a plane that's beginning to venture off flight path pretty soon because if not, if they don't correct it, it'll end in disaster. So correction and reproof is for that benefit to correct people. But most people don't like correction because it hurts our feelings. It hurts our feelings because it attacks and hurts our feelings of entitlement and self-rule. Remember our sinful nature is I want to be God. I want to direct my own life. It's American way. If your preaching is done from a spirit of fear, in other words, if you're afraid that it might offend somebody, then you won't preach the truth. You'll leave out those parts. You'll treat the truth like a buffet. I like buffets because I can go pick and choose what I want. As far as I'm concerned, the buffet should just be shrimp. I just, just eat shrimp. That's not what the Bible is. We don't pick and choose the things that we see are sweet and tasty and morsels. We preach the truth. I'm going to go to Ezekiel chapter 2, uh, 9 and 10, then we're going to go to chapter 3 of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet uh, to the Israelites during a time when they were in rebellion, and he's in a process of getting a vision. And so this is part of the vision. It's not a, an actual literal thing. This is part of the vision that's going on with Ezekiel, starting verse 9, chapter 2. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was, on, was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside. And written on it were lamentations, mourning, and woe. Then in chapter 3, 1 through 7. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find, eat this scroll, and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat that scroll. Let me pause here just for a second. You know, this isn't shrimp. This is lamentations, mourning, and woe. 
I don't know if some of y'all have seen Bear Gryllis. I mentioned him in Sunday school, uh, but he takes celebrities out into the wild and they, they eat all kinds of nasty things. I won't mention what they are because it'll spoil your lunch, but that's kind of what this is. This is not, this is the reproof. This is the stuff that doesn't taste so sweet. But let's see what happens when he tastes it, when he consumes God's truth. He takes it in. He doesn't literally eat it. This is part of the vision, but he takes it in. And he said to me, Son of man, fill your belly. Fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I, so I ate. And it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. Even those things that are difficult, when we consume it, it's sweet because it's God's word. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel. Speak my words to them. For you are not sent to the people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language whose words you cannot understand. Surely had I sent you to them, they would have listened to you. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. In other words, what God is saying here is like, if I'd, have, if I'd have sent you as a missionary to a land of a language you don't understand, they'd listen to you. I'm sending you to your own people. But they won't listen to you because they're hard-headed. Sounds familiar. We preach the word in season, out of season, in difficulty and hardship. That God's word is profitable and good no matter what. And then continuing, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. This is kind of the positive side of teaching. It builds people up, feeds their thirsty souls, helps them to grow. But he also treats it as a marathon. Be long-suffering. There are going to be periods of dry spell. Lift people up, but continue. This is a marathon. It's a long race. The prophet, or as we would say, the preacher, is not responsible for the results. He's responsible to preach the word. In verse 3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Sounds familiar. An itch to be entertained in a pursuit of a dopamine high. Dopamine is a chemical released in your brain when you feel good. I must be constantly stimulated with that dopamine. People will dictate what is preached and taught rather than God's spirit directing the word. We've raised up a generation of children that are constantly entertained from the moment they come into the world. Bells and whistles, flashy things. We're afraid for our children to be bored. And oftentimes children come to church with the same expectation, is to be entertained. I don't know about you, but as a baby boomer, uh, my number one toy was a stick. You can do all kinds of things with a stick. You can make it to a gun, you can make it to a spear. We've come a long way from that stick generation. Verse 5, but you be watchful in all things, endure, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. In other words, be on guard. Take the hits. When they talk behind your back, when there's backbiting, there's persecution, spread the gospel to the unsaved. 
Paul's calling was to the Gentiles, and he got to do that. We didn't cover that verse today, but he got to do that in a courtroom in Rome. He wanted to go to Rome, and he was stood up, and he got to share the gospel with the Gentiles. He was doing his job, and he's calling Timothy to do the same thing no matter what, no matter what happens. Let's look at him finishing well. And we're going to look at Paul finishing well in regards to the present, the past, and in the future. Verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. This is the present. The The drink offering was the last sacrifice they did in the temple. It was the very last thing, and he's being poured out. He knows the end is there. He's nearing death. The verdict was given in the Roman courtroom. The only way, only way out of this dungeon is to be executed. And in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is the past. He fought. He ran. He kept the faith. No regrets. No shoulda, woulda, couldas. He didn't go back into past sins of omission or commission because he knew those sins were departed from him long ago. As far as east is from the west, he wasn't carrying the burdens of those sins in that dungeon. He wasn't looking back at the past through regret, but he lived a life by faith. Uh, I have a friend who's dealing with cancer, and uh, before he was going to go take a test several months ago, we sat down for lunch and asked him if he was afraid. He said, yeah, I'm afraid but I'm afraid of regrets because he was looking back. He was looking back at the things that he regretted in his life. Well, he got through that period of cancer, and recently his cancer came back. So we were meeting again, and I said, last time we talked about this, you said you were fearful of the regrets. He says, where are you now? He says, I want to finish well. He wasn't looking back at the past of regrets. He was looking forward, and everything he's done since then has been to glorify God and has been reuniting in his family and relationships coming back together because he wasn't looking back at the regrets. As we look at this, is that we don't know how long our lives will be, but you know, if we're looking back, every farmer knows if you're looking back, you can't plow a straight row. If you're carrying burdens of the past, then maybe it's time to ask God to examine you and and know that those things, are you trusting those things, that he has forgiven you of those things so that you can look forward to what he has before you, finishing well with no burdens of the past. Then verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This is the future. His race may have ended that afternoon, may have ended the next day, we don't know. When I think about Scott McDill, I always think about life. Scott was just full of life. And he finished his race well, by living life. We don't know when our race is going to end. Could be today, could be the next day. Paul finished well. He didn't carry regrets of the past. He didn't fear the future. He continued to do his calling all the way to the end, speaking into Timothy's life, calling forth things in his life, presenting the gospel to the Gentiles. He finished well. We all know people who don't finish well. 
They fade away toward the end. They love this world more than they loved Christ. So the question is, how will we finish? Will we be like Timothy, recognizing that maybe there's some things that we fear, maybe a timidity or maybe a fear of failure, whatever fear it may be, but not walking in fear, but walking in faith in spite of that fear. Do you have those around you that lift you up during those difficult times? Are we encouraging each other? Are we lifting each other up? I always think about Scott that way. He's always had something positive to say to you, to lift you up. Remember the last conversation I had with Scott was after Sunday school. He said, well, David, you had another good one. <laughs> it's always encouraging. Lifting people up. Do you have those people in your life? Will you run that race with endurance, longing to hear our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you, Lord, for this very personal letter, uh, Lord, that's in your very personal letter to us from your son. Thank you, Lord, for this truth. Let us always follow the example that you gave us. Let's follow the example of Paul in finishing well in our race. For it's in Christ's name we come. Amen.